Welcome to How Contract Explained, the educational podcast produced by the Hawaiian Airlines Master Executive Council. We're going to take a deep dive in various sections of our pilot working agreement today. I'm Block 4 Rep and Secretary Treasurer First Officer Sean Lee. I'm joined here with Captain Doug Bram. How you doing, Doug? Well, good, John. How you doing? Good. We're going to start right at the top of Section 1 of the contract. That's the scope clause. And to help us out, we have uh, FO Ethan Pearson Pomerantz. How you doing? Good. How are you, Sean? Did you start at Section 1? Is this like when you're opening negotiations, you start at 1 and you go through the whole thing? So we didn't touch Section 1 this past contract um, because scope protection is pretty much the holy grail of pilots. If we don't have planes to fly, we don't have anything. Uh, there's generally special attorneys brought in to handle anything related to scope in Section 1. So in 2017, we pretty much gutted the entire section and rewrote it. Well, we didn't. We had um, a very high-priced attorney come in and do it who's very good at their job. This time around, we didn't touch it all. So it was not covered first, no. And yeah, like you said, it's a holy grail. And we'll find out in a minute uh, uh, through Doug. Uh, before we get started, I just want to point out there's an infographic designed to accompany uh, this episode. A link to it can be found in our show notes uh, if you're on the podcast or uh, through your email. So let's get into it. Section one, it's uh, it's the beginning of the PWA, so it must be really important, right, Doug? It's very important. Like Ethan said, it's basically the holy grail, and if you don't have scope, then the company can get around and, and hire whoever they want. So scope is very much uh, very important. Uh Section one is technically labeled recognition, scope, and job security. It forms a basis for everything else in the contract. And we can really divide into three sections um, listed in the title. The first part is recognition, where the company recognizes ALPA as the bargaining agent for the pilots on the seniority list at Hawaiian. The second part of section one contains scope language. That's the part we're going to be talking about today, mostly. And the third part contains what is often called labor protection provisions, which describes the rules around a merger, acquisition, or fragmentation. Thanks, Doug. It sounds really important to get this section right. It is. Um, And uh, as Ethan said earlier, there were no changes to this section during the last negotiations. Uh, This was worked on uh, prior in 2017, as Ethan mentioned. All right. So let's start uh, with uh, what's in section one. Sounds good. In a nutshell, our scope language says that all the flying done by the company or an affiliate, in this case, affiliate means things like a holding company or parent company, any flying must be done by the pilots on our seniority list. This includes flying for contracts, charters, future routes, anything like that. Anytime a Hawaiian plane goes flying or anytime Hawaiian passengers go flying, there has to be a pilot on our seniority list flying the plane. Uh, Notably, unlike some other carriers, our scope language doesn't allow a scope exception for wet leases, where another airline is contracted to provide aircraft and crew to cover flying for the company. We have to do the flying uh, on our seniority list. Our guys have to. Who allows wet leases? Is that like FedEx? A FedEx. We're just talking about that. They can just basically outsource it to Atlas. Sometimes there's penalties, sometimes there's not. Um, Alaska didn't really have any scope prior to this last contract. and it's expensive to buy. I mean, because if you don't have scope, the company can just go around it. You know, if it's too expensive, they can go to a different group. So, And if you, it's not bulletproof, that's why exactly. you hire the big lawyers. Exactly. Because you can, they're trying to circumvent it as best they can. So it's got to be bulletproof in our end. Right. As bulletproof as we can, if we, as we can make it. Our, our scope language is pretty solid. It's, it's bulletproof. But, um, you know, interestingly, the language in the contract 
it's sort of the bulk of the language is the exceptions to the rule. So the rule is all flying is Hawaiian Airlines pilots flying. In like two sentences, that's right, it. Right, that's it. But yeah. section one is a pretty big section. So really the bulk of that section is except for. Okay. <laughs> because that's where you really have to be very careful and, and use a scalpel to, to make these exceptions. So what kind of exceptions are there? As Ethan mentioned, there are limited exceptions that allow the company to place their code often references HA star or when other airlines put their code on us, it's OA star. And we're not really concerned with the OA star because that's our pilots flying. You're talking like ticketing code on a ticket. Right. United star. It's like like an American passenger flying from Honolulu to Maui on a 717. They flew from Shanghai to LA, LA to Honolulu, and now their segment HA star on Honolulu to Maui. Well, it, w- it would be AA Star, which we don't mind. We don't have any issues with with American putting their passengers on Hawaiian because it gives us right. Jobs. So it's just it's just when Hawaiian is putting their passengers on other airlines, that's where we become. That's where we are concerned. And we I want see. protection. So, so we need if protections. you did Maui to Honolulu to Long Beach and then a JetBlue segment to Boston, right. that would be an HA Star example. Exactly. So you can put all your core concepts of scope into a few sentences of the contract, but the nitty gritty when you get into the weeds are the exceptions. So what, what are they, Doug? Right. So there's, there's two ma- main exceptions. One is allowing Hawaiian to utilize other airline, air, other airlines networks to expand their reach. The other uh, exception would be to allow Hawaiian to fly into maybe smaller airports that we can't take the seven one to Hawaiian doesn't want to operate but they, they have an operational need or want to operate into those markets. So there's feeder carriers, which is within Hawaii, and then there's co-chair partners, which would be expanding Hawaiian's reach. Uh, an example of that would be a co-chair market of, say, Honolulu, this prior to, prior, or even now, but prior to Boston, say, when the company was trying to see what that looked like as a market for us, and we would fly the passengers to San Francisco, LA, Vegas, and then JetBlue or somebody else, mainly JetBlue would take them on to Boston. And there's a threshold for the company to provide us with data saying, could that market be profitable? And if it meets a profitability test, the company has a couple options is what they can do. They can either uh, put our metal on it. So that's what they did. They flew from uh, Honolulu to Boston. Or uh, they can ask uh, the MEC for approval to just keep doing what they're doing, or they can stop flying. So um, it, it, it's 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 okay for the pilot group because it doesn't make sense for Hawaiian to fly to a city where they can't be profitable on an airplane. So it protects us that way, and it allows the company to expand their service and their reach with our current customers. And they can stay on Hawaiian network or check their bags and still reach to a point we don't fly. So it's kind of a win-win as long as both sides have a gate that they're comfortable with that makes sense. Right. So they could buy tickets on markets that we don't all, fly to. Right. And that's that's across all gateways. Eventually, it does touch our market, right? Obviously, it, it has to touch our market. Somewhere that we fly to and then continue on to somewhere else. Right. The opposite... Uh, is there restrictions on the opposite? Let's say an American uh, sells a ticket from LA to 
Honolulu to Maui and that Honolulu Maui segment is that restricted at all? On our on our end, it's not. I'm sure American probably has some restrictions for that. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's I mean, we encourage that any any business we can get extra business that creates pilot jobs that creates uh demand on our side exactly so there's no restrictions on our side ethan this is a lot to take in i mean uh it's it's and when you read the scope language it it gets quite complicated but the the code shares and how they're how they're arranged are it's a lot eh, you know yeah and they are i mean we pretty much everybody has the same sort of generalized language it's the specifics that that differ from one contract to another uh, probably the easiest way to break it down is in scope, all flying belongs to Hawaiian. The exceptions are in um, 1B6 and 1B7. And like uh, Doug was talking about, that's the code share, which is further broken down actually into domestic and international. It's done differently, whether it's a right. uh, U.S. carrier versus a foreign carrier, and then the feeder carriers. And um, now feeder carriers are limited just to Hawaii. Uh, there's a ton of restrictions on what they can and not, cannot do. Uh, for example, you can't carry more than 69 passengers. You can't have more than a 69,000-pound max takeoff weight. Uh, if it's cargo, for example, um, turboprop only. They can't fly the major uh, trunk routes, inner island, you know, Honolulu, Maui, Honolulu, uh, Lahui, or Kona, or Hilo. Um, and that was the, uh, the Ohana operation that we had operating the ATRs for a while. Um, but that's the, the feeder carrier side. And that could be a wholly owned carrier, or it could be uh, a fully contract carrier, and it could be aircraft owned by Hawaiian, as were the ATRs, or it could be aircraft owned by by another carrier altogether. Let's talk about that a little bit. We we uh, our Ohana operation when it did exist, we we had some of the strongest scope language in the industry when it came to feeder operations, didn't we? We still do, I guess. Uh, I mean, it was good. I think a lot of, uh, yes. Yeah. Compared to like American United Delta, definitely. I mean, they have a, they have much more options with their feeders. Yeah. Our, our feeders were, were pretty restricted as far as what they could do. Tell me about international cold sharing. Is it, uh, are the rules different? So there's two different categories of international. There's international code sharing with a U.S. carrier and there's international code sharing with a foreign carrier. So for a domestic carrier, like let's use United, for example, that we're co-chairing with to an international market, uh, let's say Japan, United cannot exceed one-third of the available seat miles, the ASMs, that we operate to that country. So let's say all in to every destination in Japan combined, we do 100 available seat miles per day. United could only code-share. They can fly a lot more on their own, but the code-shares that like Hawaiian passengers could buy on a Hawaiian website on a United aircraft not exceed one third. So if we do 100 seat, available seat miles, United could only do 33 available seat miles per day. It's capped at a third of what we currently exactly. do. Exactly. So that applies to a domestic carrier we're code sharing with. Okay. That's a domestic carrier, a U.S. carrier code sharing with Hawaiian on an international route. Do we have restrictions on international carriers code sharing? We do. Yep. And that's based on a ratio. So what we try to do there is when the code share starts or before the code share starts, take a snapshot of how much Hawaiian is flying to that country between Hawaii and that country and how much the foreign carrier is flying between their home country and Hawaii and sort of preserve that ratio. We might not operate that many flights to a certain country. So we do have a floor. It's a minimum of four flights per week always. Uh, The available seat miles generated by four flights per week. So what, 278 seats on the 330, I think. So times four per week. Um, if we fly more than that, say we do 10 flights a week to that country, because it's not individual destinations, it's the country as a whole. 
Uh, it would be the available seat miles on 10 flights. So we'll take that snapshot of us and say we're flying, let's go with the 10, 10 flights per week to Japan, for example. And the JAL code share never really materialized fully as a JV, but it did materialize the code share. Uh, so let's say JAL's flying 20 flights per week between Japan and Hawaii. So basically it's one to two. For every one flight Hawaiian does, JAL's doing two flights. And it varies by seat mile because they might be flying airplanes with fewer seats or more seats than us. But just in a nutshell, let's say we're flying 1,000 seat miles per week to Japan and they're flying 2,000 seat miles to Hawaii from Japan. Uh, so the ratio is one to two, and that's the snapshot that we take. It can exceed that snapshot by 10%. So JAL could fly up to 110% of that snapshot. So uh, in that case, if we're flying 1,000 seats and they're flying 2,000 seats, they could fly up to 2,200 seats in a week on the code share. They can fly other flights. They just can't be part of the code share. I see. So there's a floor. There's a, there's a minimum level of how many flights have to be operated by Hawaiian, and there's some wiggle room in order to get code share activity with these. Exactly. Areas. For example, if, if we were to code share with uh, Tahiti Nui, for example, um, we're only flying one flight a week to Tahiti, but the floor would be four flights a week. Anything else we need to know about code sharing, Doug? I think that pretty much sums it up. One thing that I think would be is, is good to know is that the company is not making a ton of money off code sharing. The idea of code sharing is to offer flexibility for the company to book on a flight. Say if we don't fly that flight in the morning and there's passengers that need to connect, they can, they can utilize that. Or if they want to expand to a market we don't serve, they can kind of put their toe in the water for that market. We kind of touched on those things, but the underlying thing is it's not really a huge profit generator to, uh, to code share. Where the real money is in a code share would be in a joint venture, which is where both companies have their interests aligned and they don't care which airline the passenger flies on. So the example with that we had kind of gone through that we were, the company was trying to enter JV with JAL. And the idea is it's almost operated as one airline. So Hawaiian and, and Japan airlines would operate as, a, as one airline. And they don't care. Hawaiian doesn't care where the passengers fly. So this requires a lot more detailed protections because our interests are not aligned with the company. With a code share, the company kind of also would rather the passengers be on their own metal. With a JV, the whole idea of the JV is they don't care who the passenger flies on. If they fly on Japan or Hawaiian, they're the in an ideal coach in an ideal joint joint venture, the profit's going to be the same. It's profit sharing. So in an ideal world, they don't care. All so, the flights seemingly just merge into it, whether it's Hawaiian or, right. or, or JAL, it's you buy a ticket, you can be on either one. Right. And the company doesn't care which one because they're going to make money on, on both. So, so this is where we have to be very careful going down that road and get protections that, that protect our pilots in, 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 an, in a joint venture. There's two things that we need to protect Hawaiian pilots specifically in a joint venture. Uh, and let's keep using the idea of JAL because it almost happened and it was, it was the one we based a lot of the language on. Uh, there's the trunk routes, which are between Hawaii and Japan. And then there's the beyond flying. And the beyond flying for us would be things from Japan heading farther west. So like Japan to Hong Kong, Japan to Singapore, Japan to Europe from that direction. And then as far as JAL is concerned, the beyond flying for them would be stuff from Hawaii to 
the West Coast, Hawaii to the East Coast, things like that. The trunk routes, we need to make sure that we fly as we've always flown them. Uh, you know, if Zip Air is part of JAL and they are cheaper to operate than we are, in theory, we don't know that for a right. fact, but they're a low-cost carrier designed to be low-cost. So the concern would be that if profits are truly shared or revenue is truly shared, they could replace all of our flights to Japan with Zip Air flights because they're much cheaper to operate, they carry more people, and they would make profit on it, and we would be out of all that trunk route flying. So we need those protections. The beyond flying protections are about, we would like to fly to Hong Kong someday because those are like, or Singapore or Bangkok, whatever it might be, because those are the long segments that are very efficient to fly and, and people tend to enjoy. But if the company is able to shuttle everybody through Narita and Haneda and then put them on a Japanese airlines flight to Hong Kong or Singapore, we're never going to fly there from Hawaii. Yes, it's more convenient to have a direct flight, but if the company can achieve their profit goals by just doing it that way, Hawaiian pilots will never get the benefit of flying those long segments to the beyond destination. So we need to protect for that also. That's interesting. That I, I never would have thought that the beyond portion of that scope language needed to be protected because it's like, oh, it's beneficial. They get to Narita, but it also hampers growth for our expansion of routes. It, it very much hampers growth for our pilots. Uh, I think the company is okay with it probably because they're making the shared revenue or shared profit, depending on how it's structured for putting our passengers on a JAL flight from Narita or Haneda to, uh, to those long beyond destinations. But for the pilots, for our pilots, yeah, it's, it's very detrimental if we don't take care of that. So, Doug, what kind of protection exists for the beyond flying, the beyond the trunk route? It's, it's a similar trigger as the, uh, the code share trigger. It's 90 passengers per day each way on average. So once you ex once once they're exceeding ninety passengers on the beyond, triggers a profitability test just like in the domestic. Oh, so it's like a a, a market or, or like a, a new. It's it's exactly like a city we serve. Right. Except and, now we're talking countries. Right, and 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 it's and it's very important. This is very important as Ethan touched on before, because like I said, our interests are not aligned in starting that route because the company is already making money on that market, just like almost like if they were flying it in a, in a joint venture, because they're sharing the revenue with the other airline that does the beyond flying. So in this, in this example, we were talking about JAL earlier. If JAL is taking the passengers from um, Narita to Hong Kong, even though they're flying, the company is still making a profit on that. So they're not, they're not as interested in starting the flying themselves. So this, this, uh, this is our protection in a joint venture to say, Hey, 90 passengers, let's let's see if that makes sense for us to fly it. Because if the economics were uh, uh, right enough, it's basically we shuttle passengers on behalf of another airline. Basically, we become a, a contractor for someone right. else. Right. In, in in, and what we were worried about was instead of flying to Hong Kong now, which is, as Ethan touched on, would be a senior flight, now we're doing lots of Narita flying and, you know, which is – a more junior side of an international flying sure. and it's, they're shuttling them all over Asia instead sure. of us going direct. It's no different than domestically outsourcing. You I think you can see that it uh, like Delta had that issue in, with Air France and KLM where basically they fly 30 flights a day to Paris and Amsterdam. And then the other airlines are the ones taking the passengers around Europe. So those guys all lost their, their nice Europe overnights in many cases. And, and that's something we're trying to protect here. 
And again, if we do exceed that 90 passenger threshold and it's profitable, which it may not be, and then it's just as is, but if it's profitable, then the company has those options again of either starting the rubric up on their own, uh, getting an exemption from the MEC that's going to keep running it, or just stopping the code share. Uh, with JV, there is a fourth option. Uh, they could also start a route that is of equal length um, to that one because there may be routes we can't operate. Say, um, you know, an inter-Japan route. We can't. We don't have. Uh, I guess that's fifth freedom. There's places we might not have authorization to operate. So in that case, the company has the option of just starting up another comparable route that we could go do instead. Doug, if someone had questions regarding scope, how, what's the best way to get in touch? Send us a dart. Uh, Ethan, uh, what's uh, on the horizon next for the How Contract Explain series? Well, part two of uh, section one is coming up shortly here, uh, where we'll talk about everything else in section one that isn't pertaining to scope. Uh, there's a bunch there. And then I think we're going on to, uh, I don't know what we're doing. Wait, what's left in section one? Uh, there's the whole general section of section one, which is stuff. <laughs> All the definitions and all the... Yeah, like, the definitions and, and also, uh, most importantly, merger and fragmentation language. So what happens in the event of a merger? What happens in the event they try and part out bits of the company? Things like that. All right, guys, thank you so much for stopping in. If you have a question, send it a dart at dart.alpa.org or send it in an email at howcommunications.alpa.org. I'm First Officer Sean Lee. This is uh, Doug Bram and Ethan Pearson Pomerantz with the How Contract Explained series. Produced by the pilots of Hawaiian Airlines MEC. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Sean.